Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Ecclesiastes 3, 9 al 22. ¿Qué provecho tiene el que trabaja de aquello en que se afana? Yo he visto el trabajo que Dios ha dado a los hijos de los hombres para que se ocupen en él. Todo lo hizo hermoso en su tiempo y ha puesto eternidad en el corazón de ellos sin que alcance el hombre a entender la obra que ha hecho Dios desde el principio hasta el fin. Yo he conocido que no hay para ellos cosa mejor que alegrarse y hacer bien en su vida. Y también que es don de Dios que todo hombre coma y beba y goce el bien de toda su labor. He entendido que todo lo que Dios hace será perpetuo. Sobre aquello no se añadirá ni de ello se disminuirá. Y lo hace Dios para que delante de él teman los hombres. Aquello que fue ya es y lo que ha de ser fue ya. Y Dios restaura lo que pasó. Vi más debajo del sol, en lugar del juicio, allí impiedad, y en lugar de la justicia, allí iniquidad. Y dije yo en mi corazón, al justo y al impío juzgará a Dios, porque allí hay un tiempo para todo lo que se quiere y para todo lo que se hace. Dije en mi corazón, es así por causa de los hijos de los hombres para que Dios los pruebe y para que vean que ellos mismos son semejantes a las bestias. Porque lo que sucede a los hijos de los hombres y lo que sucede a las bestias, un mismo suceso es. Como mueren los unos, así mueren los otros. Y una misma respiración tienen todos. Ni tiene más el hombre que la bestia, porque todo es vanidad. Todo va a un mismo lugar. Todo es hecho del polvo y todo volverá al mismo polvo. ¿Quién sabe que el espíritu de los hijos de los hombres sube arriba y que el espíritu del animal desciende abajo a la tierra? Así pues he visto que no hay cosa mejor para el hombre que alegrarse en su trabajo, porque allí, porque esta es su parte, porque quién lo llevará para que vea lo que ha de ser después de él. Palabra de Dios. This is the word of the Lord. Who are you? It's an interesting question. Uh, if you've never asked that question before, sit with it. How would you answer that question? Who are you? And could you even answer that question? Uh, that question um, says a lot, actually, not only about how we identify ourselves, but answering that question also shows us what exactly is important in our life, what we find our purpose to be, what our ultimate aim of life is. Uh, it might seem like a simple question, but I would suggest that the complications of that question define much of our modern day. In many ways, as a society, we've never had a greater emphasis on the concept of identity while at the same time having such a depth of confusion about identity. We are in this perpetual identity crisis often as a society, a time when discovering purpose is paramount and yet so often it seems elusive to us. Now, if you've been with us, uh, you know that we've been in a series called The Longing, which has been a look at the wisdom found in the book of Ecclesiastes. And I realize for some, if you've been reading through the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, Ecclesiastes doesn't seem much like a wisdom book. Uh, for the most part, the book is kind of depressing and answerless, and uh, the uh, author, the teacher, is kind of cynical, seems like he's cynical about life. However, 
Those would all be wrong assumptions about what we're reading in the book of Ecclesiastes. If you remember, the teachings of the book come from someone known as the teacher, or as other translations call him, the, te- uh, the preacher. And in essence, the teacher is wrestling with the meaning of life, or more precisely, he's wrestling with the meaninglessness of life outside of a belief in a transcendent, purposed creator. It is the only book of the Bible that is largely written from a secular perspective, a perspective that mostly sees the here and now as the pinnacle of our existence. And each week we've tried to consider why we have this sense of longing for things like meaning and purpose and wisdom and pleasure and why those longings persist and yet never seem to be fully satisfied. And today we continue that exploration by considering identity. We, uh, we do have this longing for identity that never seems fully satisfied. And what might we then do with this longing and this desire to experience identity? And so what I want to do, I want to look at some of the words of the teacher. I want to look at how the teacher in this passage is wrestling with the uh, ideas of den- identity. And I want to look at it in three different ways. I want to look at it in the, the foundation of de- identity the instability of identity, and then finally the gift of identity. Okay? So first, the foundations of it. Um, I always find it interesting whenever people assume that the Bible is some kind of antiquated book of the Bronze Age with no real wisdom to share for us modern-day people. And the reason why that always intrigues me, that way of thinking intrigues me, is because it assumes that we at our core change. You know, over the course of history and time, of course, our knowledge of the world and our knowledge of the universe have evolved. But at the core of who we are as people, we have not changed since the time of the writings of Ecclesiastes. We wrestle with the same fundamental questions as ancient people, like the teacher. I mean, when considering identity, consider the words of the teacher in verse 12. This pa- or verse 12 strikes me. He says, these, these words... Okay, that, we're, that we're about to hear. To me, they sound a lot like a, a mantra of the 21st century. This is what it says. This is what the teacher says about kind of the purpose of life. He says, I know there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. In other words, life should just be about doing what makes you happy and an attempt to do good along the way. This, in many ways, is still thousands and thousands of years later, the cornerstone of our philosophy of life and government and society at large, even now. Right? The ideas that we are uh, endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these would be life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, as the Declaration of Independence states, of course. And it should be at least noted that this isn't a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to pursue happiness in life. In fact, in many ways, I think most would generally agree that such freedom is a societal good, especially when one considers what the alternative would be. So for many in history, and for many right now in various parts of the world, a pursuit of happiness is not an inalienable inalienable right. right? The idea of it being a fundamental right is kind of a foreign concept for some. You know, for many, happiness instead is rooted more in embracing the idea and the identity that's given to you, not an identity that could be discovered on your own. You know, for most of human history, 
You know, if your grandfather was a carpenter, then your father was probably a carpenter, which meant you were going to be a carpenter, right? There was no sense of, let's just do what makes me happy. You know, if you were a woman who was able to have children, then that meant you were going to get married, you were going to have children, you were going to raise those children. And it really didn't matter. You really didn't consider whether or not that was what you wanted from your life or whether or not your life was fulfilled or whether the role of a homemaker and mother was what you wanted and what made you happy. Now, of course, there were some pragmatic realities as to why that was the way of life, why certain identities were dictated to people. Uh, And I I don't even want to put any particular value judgment on those ways of, of life and those ways of thinking, because those can be a good way to approach life. But the identity crisis for many in the past wasn't so much rooted in whether or not you could discover an identity, but rather it was rooted in your ability to actually fulfill the expected identity that was given to you. And today, we might look at some of those ideas as antiquated or unfair uh, ideas, and maybe they are, maybe that is true. But the ever-evolving nature of identity means that in just another few generations, the most enlightened among us right now will be looked at as being backward and antiquated and old-fashioned, right? Identity is always changing. I mean, we're talking our grandparents had completely different ideas of what identity was. Our parents have completely different ideas of what might be present and common and popular today. It's always going to change. I mean, what then is the foundation of our identity today? I mean, today, the pursuit of happiness is not defined by my ability to fulfill a predetermined identity, but rather by my ability to discover an identity consistent, again, with what makes my life happy. And while many, there are many benefits to this kind of broad societal way of thinking, at the same time, as I said before, it's created new levels of uncertainty about how to answer the question, who am I? We have these uh, profound identity crises as we think about that question because there are endless ways to identify today. There are no limits There are endless jobs and career options, endless conceptions of family, endless conceptions of sexuality or sexual identity, endless conceptions of political affiliations or belief systems, endless self-defining tools like the Myers-Briggs or Strength Finders or Enneagram to try to understand yourself better, endless belief systems and religions and philosophies to discern. And with the accessibility of information today, there are endless ways to either support or refute the validity of the identity that you're trying to curate. It's a mess out there. And so for many, it's creating a mess in here and in here. In many ways, there doesn't seem to be any real objective basis for identity, which for some might sound good until you try to go out and discover your own identity and you realize that there are endless options And so the foundations of identity, according to the teacher, to be happy and to do good while you live, that sounds great until you really wrestle with what actually ought to make you happy and what actually a good life is. Often it's just going to leave us feeling completely unstable. Let's look at that, the the instability of identity. You know, pursuit of happiness uh, in life 
as a means of discovering your identity inevitably is going to leave you feeling that instability, feeling shaky, feeling fragile. I mean, look at the realizations that the teacher has when he's considering these things, uh, the, the pursuit of happiness in life. Verse 15, he says, whatever is has already been and what will be has been before. In other words, whatever you think you're creating in the world that is new or that is valuable, don't think too highly of it because in the end, it's already been done and it will be done again. Verse 16, he says, and I saw something, uh, something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, the wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. Do you hear what he's saying there? In other words, he's saying, whatever justice you think that you're accomplishing in the world, don't think too highly of it. Because even in the places of greatest justice, there is also deep wickedness that still exists. You think you're making the world a better place. That's cool. But just so you know, even in the places of greatest justice, you're going to find injustice. Verse 18 and uh, 18 through 20, he says this, I said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they are like animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. In other words, let's be real. In the end, your fate is no different than that of the animals. You'll be born, you'll live an unknown amount of time, you'll die, and then you'll be forgotten, and the world will just move on. In the end, everything you care about is meaningless, and in the end, you came from dust, you will return to dust, just like the most insignificant of animals, and so who cares how you identify? In his conclusion, in verse 22, he says, So I saw that there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work, because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? In other words, just figure out something to do until your time is up. That's the best you've got. Because in the end, you have no idea what will come. Now, I've asked this question before, and I'm going to ask it to us again. How many of us are willing to be that honest about life and the identities that we claim? But why might otherwise seemingly good pursuits end up leading us to meaninglessness? Well, it all comes back to, right, this instability all comes back to the constant refrain of Ecclesiastes, which is that everything is meaningless, a chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. Over and over again, the teacher is reminding us of that, that our pursuits of identity are meaningless because in the end, they are confined to the limitations of time and the processes of nature and our resources and our abilities. No matter how we might identify, we can never possess all that is necessary to actually fully embody the identities that we desire. Let me explain to you what I mean. If your identity is rooted in intelligence... Be realistic to say you're going to be limited by time and ability to acquire the kind of knowledge that you desire to possess. The amount of knowledge that you can gain in the short span of your life is really meaningless in the broad scheme of knowledge that can be attained. If your identity is in family as being a son or a daughter or a mother or a father, you're limited 
by your ability to be the family member that does not fail their family, and you're limited by the reality that those whom you've loved at any time could fail you, could be taken from you, or you could be taken from them. Everyone that you have ever loved will either leave us in death or we will leave them in death. Death is always potentially right around the corner. You know, for those who identify in sex or their sexuality or their ability to be sexual, you're always limited by the number of sexual encounters that you can experience, the availability of time to actually have those sexual encounters. I think we all know this as you get older, things change. It gets harder and harder to embrace one's sexuality as you get older and older. And if your identity is wrapped up in your sexuality, as has been said before by, uh, your, uh, by another pastor, you will die a thousand deaths before death actually comes. You know, if your identity is political, you're going to experience a crisis, a panic every four years. When the possibility of your political party winning power or losing power comes up again. And it will be a constant cycle of anxiety until one day you're gone. So what difference does it make what political party you claim? Plus, we tend to prize our ability to identify in ways that we determine that's best for ourselves. The idea that my truth is my truth, I will chart my own destiny, I will not be defined by anyone else's expectations of me, But an honest assessment of our identities shows the extent to which no one establishes an identity in a vacuum. We are all shaped by outside forces. We might think that we have discovered an identity for ourselves, but know that the identity that you've discovered for yourself was influenced by the culture in which you lived. It's been influenced by your socioeconomic either privileges or disadvantages. It's been influenced by your family experiences. All of these things shape us deeply. We might think we have this self-made identity, and I'm just going to do me. But that belief is still influenced by many, many other things. And in the end, we will find even our, self, uh, our self-made identities will prove themselves meaningless. The last thing I'm going to say about this instability piece is that I also know that some, as they're wrestling through all of this, they'll say things like, I've had these kinds of conversations, say things like, yeah, maybe my my pursuits of identity right now uh, might not amount much to me, but I'm going to be noble and I'm going to pursue my own identity so that my pursuit of identity might pave the way for others to experience their identity more fully into the future. But don't deceive yourself into believing that that will actually be the case. Because often, what we're going to see is that those who we pave the way for into the future, they're going to end up in the same kind of identity crises that we find ourselves in. They're still going to experience the same kind of instability. And the reason why I draw this out is because, consider the book of Ecclesiastes. This was written thousands of years ago. And here we are, reading those words of an ancient philosopher countless generations later. I mean, the same thing that he was wrestling with then, we are still wrestling with now, and countless generations to come are also going to wrestle with the same. 
Whenever our identities are built on anything that is under the sun, the result is going to be that identity is going to be taken, it's going to be shaken, and it's never going to fulfill. It's always going to leave us longing. And so the question then becomes for us, if that's, if that's the case, if, if, if identity, a lasting, meaningful identity, isn't something that we can achieve, what's the answer? Well, the answer is that it's not something that you can achieve, but rather it's something that you receive. There's a gift of identity given. Now, I asked this question in the beginning. I'm going to ask it again. Who are you? I mean, if the answer to that question is connected to something, again, under the sun, it's going to wane, it's going to change, it's going to be crushed. But what if the answer to that question is connected to something that endures? What if it's connected to something, not that's fragile or unstable, but rather it's connected, our identities are connected to something that is firm, secure, unchanging? How might that then change the way that we view all other identities that we might claim in the here and now? Look at verse 14. The teacher says this. He says, I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. Now, how are we to actually understand the com- those comments made by the teacher? Because that statement that he's making is actually not a statement of hope, if you consider the, the, uh, the context of what he's saying. The reason being that it's not a statement of hope is that he just came out of arguing that there is nothing of great value that we can discover under the sun. But then he goes on to say, but you have God, then, who's doing stuff out there that we can't comprehend. And so in the end, it's kind of like he's throwing his hands up in frustration, saying, everything I pursue is meaningless. God is doing stuff that I can't know. I give up. Have you ever been there? But now, there's something else, though, that the teacher, at the time, couldn't fully articulate. There's something that he didn't quite know. Because there's something that God was doing, that God is doing, and that God is going to continue to do, that produces the kind of identity that we're talking about. We know something about what God is up to that the teacher didn't fully understand. And that is that there's this establishment of an identity rooted not in the ever-changing never secure ideologies of the day, but in the never changing, always secure, always um, faithful and present relationship that's experienced through Jesus. His statement that everything God does will endure forever, nothing can be added to it and nothing taken away should be viewed as a statement, shouldn't be viewed as a statement of frustration, but a statement of promise a promise in Jesus, a promise of an identity that is gifted to you. For those of us here who trust in Christ, those of us here who are Christians, consider the identity that you have in Jesus. Though you maybe have not experienced a perfect family, Romans 8 tells us that we are adopted into God's family. For those maybe you here who you... Um, you have been poor and you've been without resources. Ephesians 1, Colossians 3, Hebrews 9 tells us that as children of God, we have an inheritance of eternal splendor. Though we might struggle 
regularly with our sins. Ephesians 2, Colossians 1, Romans 8 tells us that we are saints and that we have been given a perfect righteousness and that we are empowered to live more and more in line with that righteousness. You know, though at times our love or the love of others fails us, 1 John 3, Zephaniah 3 tells us that we are loved and cherished by God. Cherished in the way that a loving parent enjoys their children, so also does God enjoy his children. You know, though we live in a world of brokenness and broken relationships that affect us profoundly, Romans 5 and Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4 tell us that we're reconciled, that we're forgiven by God, that we're welcomed into relationship with our Creator. Though at times we might feel unheard, Jeremiah 33 and 1 Peter 3 and 1 John 5 tell us that we have been heard and that we have been seen. And though we are unsure what life ought to be and how we ought to engage with life, we're also told that we have been gifted talents and abilities. Ephesians 2, 1 Peter 4, Romans 12 tells us that God has specially gifted us to accomplish a work set forth by God himself. Hear your identity, Christian. You are adopted. You are an inheritor of an eternal splendor. You are a saint. You are empowered. You are loved. You are welcomed. You are heard. You are seen. You are specially gifted by God. That for the Christian, is secure, never-changing identity. And those identities, when we are able to embrace them and see them and experience them for what they are, a work of Jesus on our behalf, it then shapes everything else about how we see our lives. For those who trust in Jesus, the one who lived and died and rose again for you, when your identity is rooted in him and what he says about you, what he says about your identity, our jobs, our families, our sexuality, our politics, our education, and a host of other ways that we identify start to become clear about how we are to not use those identities as a way of trying to fulfill the longing that's within us, but rather see those identities as our opportunity to express our primary identity, which is Jesus. So do you have that longing? If that longing exists, whether you're a Christian or not, that longing is there because you haven't fully embraced the identity that comes by trusting in Christ. And until we confess the ways that we have attempted to find our identity in other things, we will endlessly be searching and longing. Until we acknowledge that we've been running for God, from God in order to um, f- be the master of our own lives, we will constantly be searching constantly longing until we acknowledge our need for a Savior who comes to rescue us from ourselves. We will endlessly be searching and longing. And so I pray that we all lay down our striving, that we receive the identity that has been given to us in Jesus. And through that, we stop this constant struggling, constant longing, and we rest in that identity, and allow every other identity that we have in life be shaped by that primary one. And I trust that as that happens, we'll be fulfilled. We're going to experience that fulfillment more and more. That's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for myself. May the Spirit of God make it so in us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the identity that is gifted to us. It's not an identity that we 
pursue and in the end leaves us longing for more. It's an identity that radically transforms, radically fulfills. And Lord, the extent to which we still have that longing is often the extent to which we have not trusted in Jesus. And so we pray that your Spirit would make clear to us the ways that we haven't trusted him. And that your Spirit would lead us to a deeper trust and affection for Jesus. God, would you do it? We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.